We know you like to stay up to date on all the latest news. That's why you're listening to The Weeds. Uh, but now you can stream our podcast and a bunch of others like it on Spotify. I mean, you guys, you probably know Spotify. I've used it for a long time. It's streaming music service, tons of access to tons of great stuff. Amazing service, but also now they have podcasts. So it's really easy. You can open the app on your mobile device or on desktop, click on the browse channel, then you click on the podcast section. So you can also stream on, on your smart speaker. So I'd use Spotify for music. I'd use other stuff for podcasts. A compelling reason to start using Spotify for my podcasting is that it works with Amazon Echo, other products like that in the home. It's really cool. You know, you should check it out. I mean, you, you probably know what Spotify is, but think about Spotify in the podcasting context. So start streaming today. Stay up to date on all the world's latest news on Spotify. <laughs> I feel really bad. This is going to be like, they want things to be faster, but this is totally the episode where we could just be in here for three hours. No, it's fine. It's fine. Hello and welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Dara Lind. I'm here with co-host Matt Iglesias. This is apparently Ice Week on the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you are subscribed to our daily podcast, Today Explained, which if you aren't, you totally should be, get on that. Uh, but if you aren't subscribed, you you did not know that yesterday, or Thursday rather, they did an episode on Arctic ice snowmelt uh, and what that means for you know global security. We are talking about a different kind of ice, the bureaucratic acronymous kind of ice, um, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, which is the agency in the U.S. government tasked with deporting people who are here in the U.S. Uh, without legal immigration status, and which has kind of become something of the boogeyman of the Trump administration, I think it's fair to say. There's a lot of attention being paid to the ICE agents kind of carrying out Trump's agenda on immigration and a lot of somewhat new, but also, you know, long boiling outrage and terror among progressives. And so there's this rising call on the left to abolish ICE. Uh, that's something of a meme insofar as it's a policy proposal, but it's also kind of a slogan. Matt is fascinated by it. I am totally fascinated by it, of course. And so we're going to talk about it for a bit. Yeah. So in case you you don't spend all day glued to Twitter, which really you should, it's a very really healthy, you should not do it's not a listen very to healthy response to life. So one thing that you will see these days is that. People, left-wing people, commenting on some news about immigration policy where many liberals might look at it and say, aha, this deportation action seems mean-spirited or I have some queasy feelings about it. You will now see people saying this shows we should abolish ICE. A particular guy, Sean McElwee, has done a lot of work to, on social media, uh, popularize the idea, abolish ICE. They now sell T-shirts that have this slogan. Um, and so a topic that was once a kind of immigrant community organizing subject has now become the, the subject of a very self-conscious, like, white progressive organizing, memeing, getting long-shot House candidates to say they support defunding ICE. Uh, probably the, the greatest victory this movement has scored yet is they got Chris Hayes to ask Kamala Harris about it. On MSNBC, Kamala Harris, of course, presidential aspirations uh, represents California, where immigration is, is a big subject. Uh, she was not into abolishing ICE. So this has not 
moved to the mainstream, but it is right, it is, is out there waiting for someone to get to Harris's left on immigration and and become a hero to at least left-wing immigration Twitter. Right. This is the culmination of a couple of trends. One is that, you know, immigrant rights activists themselves, primarily activists who are working at the local level, this is one of those issues where immigration activists at the national level have traditionally been looking to Congress to legalize immigrants um, or looking to the, you know, administration certainly the Obama administration, which actually, you know, sometimes listened to them to dictate policies from the top that would protect more immigrants from deportation. At the local level, there's been a lot more attention to pushing back on enforcement and to the idea that ICE needs to be restrained. Uh, that is kind of one thread going into this. The other thread is, frankly, that a lot of people are newly horrified about the consequences of stuff that were happening under certainly Obama's first term. But now that it's a Republican in office uh, and that Republican is Donald Trump, a lot of white progressives who also maybe are a lot more tuned into politics and maybe more progressive than they were eight years ago are looking at this stuff and going, oh, my God, we have an American Gestapo now. Uh, that The kind of Gestapo comparison is very common. And it's something that I personally have some feels about, but we'll probably get into that later. But the organizing moment is the result of kind of both of those trends. But there's kind of a policy basis there, right? There's a reason that this is coming to the fore under Donald Trump. And there's also a reason that a lot of people have been pushing for restrictions on ice power going back, you know, even during the Obama administration. So this being the weeds, we're going to use, you know, flashback music to talk about why we have this agency to begin with. There is an argument being made by the Abolish ICE side that the Department of Homeland Security was created in 2003, so it shouldn't be that big a deal to get rid of a 15-year-old agency. It would be just like getting rid of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for example, which Republicans want to do, which was only created in 2010. Like, not a big deal. I think the the real history of this, I mean, you could go back a long, long, long time, but I, I think we should go back a, a medium long time to like Ronald Reagan is president. And the situation that I mean, I mean, I think people who are not like old enough to remember or don't know people. I, I know some people who, who immigrated, you know, without papers in the late 70s and, and early 80s. And the situation at that time was it was not what you would call open borders in a formalistic sense, but there was no enforcement of immigration law in the interior of the United States. If you came into contact with the government in some form, you could get into trouble. So there was enforcement at the borders. If you were arrested, you could be deported as part of the punishment for your crime. Right. If you were convicted and imprisoned more commonly. Right. I, I mean, pe right. I mean, like pe people, people get punished for crimes in the United right. States. If you were an unauthorized immigrant who was getting punished for a crime, being removed from the country could be part of the punishment. Or even if you were a legal immigrant and you were convicted of a crime, you know, losing your legal status would be part of the punishment and then you'd get deported from there. And also, of course... Like the government is a big deal. I guess I, I think people shouldn't underplay what a lack of interior enforcement meant. Like the government is a big deal. The government gives people driver's licenses. The government uh, is how you collect your social security benefits. Like not being a legally authorized resident of the United States was a significant encumbrance on a person's life. Yeah, and there, and there was some 
enforcement against people who were living and working in the United States. Historian Anna Minion has a book coming out about this soon, uh, which is super exciting. But she's done a lot of work on enforcement against California farm workers in like mid-century. And there are horror stories about people like sleeping in trees because they didn't want, you know, the Border Patrol agents to be able to find them. But like those are particular Think of them as like military operations, right? There's not a standing army serving as an occupation force. Right. So it was nobody's job on a day-to-day basis to like see if there was somebody in Cincinnati there without papers and like rouse them from their job cleaning houses. Right. And there, and, and there so couldn't no way- have been because there just wasn't – there was no way to know, right? Like in a paper-based government, it's extremely difficult to know when someone who doesn't have papers and doesn't want to be found is going right. to show up. And so then in, in 1986, there is a law that grants legal status to a, a very large cohort of – you know, currently uh, unauthorized residents of the United States. It was paired with some notions of stepped-up enforcement. And it did not serve as a solution of the illegal immigration problem. Whatever it is people thought was going to happen, there was no solution. And 10 years later, the national political environment had become very, very concerned about immigration. I mean, if you were not around then. If you're looking at Donald Trump and you're saying like, wow, there's a lot of hysteria about immigration, like in the early to mid-90s, and you could see this in the polls, it was a much higher level. And you could see it in the fact that a Democratic administration led by by Bill Clinton was very eager to like do something about this. And they, and they passed a big law in 1996. ICE is new, is a Bush era, but I, I think it was the 1996 law that really commences the idea that the federal government needs to be like putting money into trying to tighten up immigration, right? They start they start building barriers on the border. They greatly expand the list of offenses for which you can be deported. And they start adding to INS's mandate that it should be like routinely engaged in some kind of interior enforcement. I would I would put this a little differently. I would say that the 1996 law made it possible. It gave the federal government a lot of opportunities to like bu- it built out the skeleton of immigration enforcement. Mm-hmm. Like it said that the federal government could not grant legal status to people who were already in the US without papers in a lot of cases. It made it much easier to deport people in a lot of cases. But what it did in terms of interior enforcement, the most relevant thing it did was expand the opportunity for the federal government to partner with state and local law enforcement on immigration enforcement. That, at the time, was seen as a way to, in one case, make it easier for the federal government to identify people who were in jails, uh, because that was not an automatic thing at the time. It's only become automatic in the last 10 years that the federal government, you know, for immigration purposes, becomes aware of who's getting booked into jails. Uh, And on the other side, it was seen as a way to, like, use local law enforcement as a force multiplier when the federal government did want to kind of do these military operation style sweeps or, you know, go after particular businesses or that kind of thing. But the Clinton administration itself, or at least Clinton's 
you know, former INS commissioner told me this week that they were really wary of that because they saw that as something that local communities should be really eager to have if the federal government was going to partner with them on this. And no local community was really eager to have it. They didn't see it as an opportunity that the federal government should really be pushing for, but rather something that was an option if both parties wanted to take it. The idea of resources, I think, really comes into play when we start talking about the 21st century and the, the development of ICE itself. And, oh, and we, should, we should define our terms. So, so INS is an agency that no longer exists. It was Immigration right. and Naturalization Services. And it had a sort of, um, by our modern standards, mixed role that they would like, they processed visa applications and naturalization services, as is in the name, like the legal immigration paper flow they managed. They also did the immigration aspect of border security, as I understand it. So it's like both people and stuff show up at the border. And there was like a conceptual distinction between the people and the stuff. And then they also, to the extent that interior enforcement was happening, were in charge of it, but it sort of wasn't happening. Right. Right. I mean, INS was just basically responsible for the, you know, for the implementation of immigration law. Was not solely responsible, but that was that was its mandate. And then, after nine eleven, a few things happened. One of those things is that because of the circumstances of who the nine eleven hijackers were, how they had been in the United States to begin with, there is a big push to understand not just people coming into the U.S. for the purposes of terrorism, but immigration violations themselves as a national security issue to consider visa overstays, for example, to be a problem for national security because you no longer know exactly who is in the U.S. or exactly why they're there. At the same time, there's this new attention to an idea that had been pushed by Joe Lieberman and others before 9-11 that we need to have a Department of Homeland Security that can consolidate a bunch of things that had been spread across several government departments at the time. You combine the two of those and you get a scenario where everybody thinks, or at least you know enough people to get a, an enactment passed, think that immigration should be part of the Department of Homeland Security and... An idea that if immigration violations are a national security problem, maybe it's not a great idea to have the agency doing that be the same agency that is supposed to be warm and welcoming toward legal immigrants. Maybe it makes more sense to split those up so that people can be focused on enforcement. But even beyond that, there's an idea that, okay, if visa overstays, which isn't something that the border, that you can catch at the border by definition, are a problem, then maybe we should have a separate agency that is devoted to both, you know, longer term investigations. A lot of ICE as it stands right now is called Homeland Security Investigations. They do kind of longer term work on human smuggling, trafficking, that kind of thing. But there's also what's called enforcement and removal operations, which is the part of ICE that is solely responsible for apprehending, deporting and detaining people in the U.S. who don't have immigration status. I I want to highlight, I guess, a, a different aspect of, of how this came together, which is that, you know, so 9-11 happens, obviously, it's a big deal. Transformative impact on American politics, people in politics, they they want to say something that is, like, relevant. And so one thing that a, a lot of people, a, a wide group of, of political entrepreneurs, I, I think a former Senator John Edwards is having been prominent in this, is, like, we should create a new agency 
Right. And the new agency, it's like purpose, right? Like the box it is filling is like I'm a senator and I want to do something about terrorism. And so it's like, OK, we should have a new agency. And the idea is floating out there, um, including from from Edwards and, and others, that like we should have a MI6 style like, like actually something new should be created that's like an American domestic intelligence service, right? And that possibly there should be a function similar to an interior ministry in a, in a European – we have a department of the interior, but it, it runs parks and like government-owned grazing land. Um, it's not a uh, domestic security service, right? But there's a lot of American ethos that like goes against creating an agency like that. And there's also the existence of the FBI, which is a bit of its own weird beast and which has its own odd relationship to the Justice Department that it's like half in but also autonomous from. Anyway, American bureaucracy, it's very old. So we wind up like not creating the home ministry. Right. What we instead do is a bureaucratic reorganization where shit just happens over the course of American history. And so like over time, it came to be that there was an agency that was charged with preventing the assassination of the president, which is an important job, but also with stopping counterfeiting. So because most of – there's only one president and there's a lot of money. So most Secret Service people worked in the counterfeiting arm. So it was part of the Treasury Department. So you had the Treasury Department, which is about economics, was overseeing securing the life of the president, which is dumb. So – Okay, you put Secret Service over in DHS. FEMA had always just been like lurking around. Its, its mission is not closely related to the missions of other government agencies. But if a terrorist blew up a giant bomb, like you would want FEMA in there. So okay, they're, they're DHS, right? So you're throwing stuff together. The Coast Guard was like kind of part of the military, kind of not. So they throw that in there. You're lumping things in. And part of what they do is they take immigration out of justice and they and they put it into DHS because it's like something has to go, right? It's like they wanted to create this agency, so they have to put stuff into the agency. But emotionally, politically, and psychologically, this agency is America's counterterrorism squad. And so like you will frequently see on movies, right, that like the writers will call in like Homeland Security is is going to address some kind of problem, right? And that's not how it works. Like the, the FBI is still the FBI, right? Like if there's a big case, like typically the FBI is the lead agency in, in addressing it. There's U.S. attorneys, you know, who, who prosecute these crimes. But Homeland Security has the iconography of being this like national security institution who exists to stop terrorism. And so then – when they do this reorganization inside immigration work and they and they create immigration and customs enforcement, they, they create a domestic immigration enforcement agency as part of the process of creating DHS. In effect, they have created America's domestic intelligence service, right? Like – the message that is being sent by the way this all came together is that like instead of back in the day, we would sometimes round up some farm workers because we had some kind of concern about the economy or whatever, that like this is how we are going to stop terrorism is with interior immigration enforcement. And I don't think that's like – that's not like something George W. Bush 
said. It wasn't like an overt policy decision, but because there was this hole that's like, we got to create an agency that's going to keep us safe from terrorism. And then they created this agency that was supposed to do domestic immigration enforcement. The understanding of that agency became that like they were doing this incredibly critical national security work. I am not sure I am persuaded by that argument in terms of I don't know how relevant it is to the people who were actually signing up and doing the work. But I also think that like whether or not the mechanism you've described is accurate, you still end up getting to the same place for a couple of reasons. For one, it, it's worth noting there was a division of the old INS that was called detention and deportation. It's not like there was nothing and then ICE was created ex nihilo. It was, you know, taking something that was kind of a relatively minor subsection of one agency and turning it into its own agency. What happens when you do that is that Congress now has a distinct line item in its budget for an immigration enforcement agency where that was not apparent at the same level. So the money that gets allocated to both ICE and Customs and Border Protection, the Border Enforcement Agency, keeps going up and up and up and up. Uh, meanwhile, the agency responsible for processing legal immigration applications is now entirely fee funded. Uh, it does not really get government you know, appropriations money, um, but you know that creates the resource is to hire a lot more people. And that's kind of the point, right? They want to have a lot more people doing domestic immigration enforcement. So a lot of those people get hired under the Bush you know, administration as, as the agency staffs up, and they are being hired explicitly and solely for the purpose of finding people who are in the U.S. who aren't supposed to be here and removing them. Like a lot of law enforcement agencies, that has uh, you know, a particular appeal in some cases to ex-military folks, to people from other law enforcement. Uh, it is not necessarily a place where you go if what you want to do is like develop great you know community relationships with people if you want to do that you might like go to serve as a local law enforcement agent and so one of the questions about ICE as an agency is are the people who are staffing it particularly at the field agent level people who are going about this in a in, in the way that civil servants traditionally go about things in terms of, well, the president we serve under is going to give us an agenda for what we're supposed to prioritize and we're going to follow that president's agenda? Or are they like rootin' tootin' cowboy types who are going to round them up some illegals and, you know, it doesn't really matter what the president says? What's a lot of the reason that that second idea exists out there is that the ICE union has been really unusually vocal, especially under President Obama, in terms of saying it is bad for our morale not to be able to enforce the law in the way we would like. They legit held a vote of no confidence against Obama's ICE director back in 2010, which is ironic because in 2010 – you know, 400,000 people got deported when Obama in 2014 put out some memos through his Department of Homeland Security that actually did put very clear and solid restrictions on who ICE should be apprehending for deportation. The ICE union reported to Congress repeatedly that they were being prevented from enforcing the law, that it was absolutely terrible for morale, that, you know, this was a, a violation of the rule of law. And they ultimately became very vocal supporters of then-candidate Donald Trump. So it's not exactly like this is a stereotype with no grounding in reality. At the same time, you know, some of the Obama era ICE officials will tell you that 
they did actually get ICE agents to follow the memos that were put out in 2014 and that the reason that immigration enforcement was so aggressive before that to levels that, to be perfectly clear, Donald Trump has not hit the levels of first term Obama in terms of immigration enforcement by any actually quantitative measure. What we're looking at now is a return to the status quo that existed in 2013. But Obama era officials will say that they worked it out and figured out a way that they could have input from ICE field officials, that they could like go through a bureaucratic process that resulted in most people who were in the U.S. without papers having very little risk of getting apprehended if they'd been living here, if they hadn't committed any crimes. Uh, that, you know, in 2015 and 2016 in particular, and you really do see this in the numbers, the role of ICE got restricted and controlled to more or less the people who they wanted to focus on. And so what we're seeing right now is a rejection of that very brief, you know, kind of oasis in immigration enforcement. It's deliberately throwing off the shackles, as the Trump administration likes to say, vice agents, and allowing them to prioritize whoever they want to prioritize for deportation. And it turns out that that looks, at least after a year or so, not hugely distinct from what was happening in 2012 and 2013 when the Obama administration said they really were trying to direct how ICE enforcement was being used. But rhetorically, it sounds very different. Okay, with that, I think we should take a break, talk about present day activism. Life is complicated, but getting dressed doesn't have to be complicated. Their clothes are premium essentials. They're made using the finest materials without huge traditional markups, and they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. Uh, They want you to know what you're paying for and why you're paying for it. So they have an ethic of radical transparency about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the factories they work with. And they sell directly to you. It means their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Their clothes, they look better, they cost less, they last longer. They focus on essentials, like a Cotton Crew t-shirt that's exactly what it should be. It's simple, stylish, made from quality materials. Uh, I'm going on the road for a couple days over the weekend. I'm going to be taking my my Everlane Weekender bag, which is like a great, durable, nice-looking, super reliable product for that. They've got a cashmere crew, um, slip-fit jean, straight-fit denim, a great men's Japanese Oxford shirt. There's a ton of stuff out there. They're timeless essentials. They're just what you're looking for. There's no frills, just quality and a great price. So right now, you can get free shipping on your first order when you go to everlane.com slash weeds. That's everlane.com slash weeds. Everlane.com slash weeds. The way it looked to me when I started seeing, you know, abolish ice uh, memes and stuff was that people felt that the debate had gotten skewed in some way or another, right? And that the call for a return to late Obama policies that you were just describing, where there was heavy prioritization and blah, 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 was like too mealy-mouthed to work as a political slogan. And so what they should do is say, let's abolish ICE. Because now what Obama did in his second term, which was effective and met the sort of basic goals of immigration advocacy groups becomes the moderate, sensible center, squeamish position that Democratic politicians will take. And that abolish ICE didn't really mean anything. And there was not like a lot of thought into like, like, what are you saying? 
because I'm, I haven't covered the creation of DHS, right? Like you could abolish ICE in the sense of like remerging it with, you know, the other, uh, the immigration service agency and like change what's on their windbreakers. Anyway, it, it could mean a lot of stuff. But, but I took it to mean that like just like conservatives said they wanted to abolish the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But then what they actually did was they put Mick Mulvaney in charge of it and they just changed what it does. And then this would be the same thing. That, like, you could get some people riled up saying abolish ICE, abolish ICE, abolish ICE. And then eventually, like, President Harris just, like, appoints a different commissioner, redoes the, like, 12 months of yelling at people back and forth, but just moves faster to the outcome Obama landed on and then whatever else happens. But that there was no real abolish ICE concept. That's certainly how it appears to have started. The thing is that psychologically, it turns out it's really hard to advocate for a position that you only believe in instrumentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Sean McElroy is, you know, totally admitted to me this week, you know, I I was starting this just as an Overton window thing. You know, you want, like you said, you want to shift the discourse leftward. But, you know, he said, I'm now totally a true believer. I think that the there's actually appeal in the idea of straight up abolish the, you know, just like burn the agency to the ground is a, a couple of things. First of all, even though there was a big shift in immigration enforcement in 2015 and 2016 and For the most part, immigrant communities themselves recognize that, although it was very fragile and kind of the least move from the administration, even if it was in practice targeted, if it didn't look targeted, would kind of send shockwaves through communities. Progressives who were not directly part of the immigrant rights movement or themselves kind of tied to immigrant communities took a long time to recognize the first term deportation strategy of Obama. It really took until like the second term, uh, particularly 2014, to get a lot of white progressives to understand just how aggressive the Obama administration had been. But they didn't update that model in 2015 and 2016. Like even as in practice, deportations were and arrests kind of more relevantly because it takes a while to deport someone uh, for the very simple reason that immigration courts are still under the Department of Justice and Congress didn't notice that they weren't funding the way that people could actually get sent out of the country. They were just funding the people who were going to do it. Um, Anyway, the kind of idea of Obama as the deporter in chief held to a certain extent among white progressives, even though that was not as true. And so, you know, the the kind of left position is that Obama's deportation strategy, period, was unacceptably aggressive, rather than that it was bad until 2014. And then in 2014, it started being okay. The other thing here is that there's broader understanding on the left and among progressives generally than there was a few years ago about the ways that the criminal justice system can turn someone into a criminal for actions that might not have on the have at their outset seemed criminal or that might not be criminal if the person looked different or were in a different community. And so the Obama administration's line of we're going to deport felons, not families, always seemed like a bad distinction to many of the immigrant activists on the ground who were like, this guy has a DUI, but he's also a a father and he's been working in the U.S. for a decade. He's both a felon and a family. Uh, But it also 
seems to ring a little hollow now to people who understand that the process by which someone is made a felon may or may not have anything to do with whether they pose a public safety threat. So there's a little more skepticism of the idea that the criminal justice system should be empowered to determine who's deportable. I also, though, do think that the left of the Democratic Party doesn't feel great about deportation as a thing right now. And while very few people on the ground are interested in talking about open borders per se, I've never seen anything where there's as big a split between where the like very smart academics think is worth spending their mental energy and where the organizers think is worth spending their mental energy is on the idea of open borders. It's just like not a concept that people on the ground care about because it's not relevant to the actual things they're fighting to to oversimplify vastly. And I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of angry tweets about that. But it's hard to identify a case in which people on the left will be willing to say, yes, it is good for America that people like this get deported. Like, I'm sure that most people in practice would not have a problem with terrorists getting deported, but there's a little more skepticism of the idea of deportation itself as certainly as something that's not even technically a criminal punishment, right? But skepticism that being taken away from maybe a family, maybe a community where you've lived for several years is an appropriate response to a civil violation of law. I think that this is a big problem, this kind of disconnect, right? Because there's a top-down question, which is like, what should the immigration, like, system look like, right? And I think very few people, like regular people uh, involved in any kind of practical level with anything, like want to say, okay, what the system should look like is that like any person from anywhere in the world who wants to come to the United States uh, should just like be able to show up and say like, yeah, I'm in. And then you get amazing, you know, here you are, legal permanent resident of the United States. That's all she wrote, right? Like there are a lot of practical issues with that and political sensitivities that people do not want to like make that their goal for American public policy. But then when you look at people who work with communities, right? I mean, progressives have a a lot of belief in organizing and communities and things like that. For any particular immigrant who has already arrived in the United States and has been like living here and has ties to a community, there is a strong desire to say, no, that person should not be deported. That person should be able to get an identifying card of some kind. That person should be able to uh, get an education if they want to, right? And so it's like it's like grassroots open borders rather than top-down open borders. To people who are not – like most people, right, like particularly most voting people are not rooted in immigrant communities in some kind of way. They are open to a lot of different ideas about immigration policy. But the idea can't just be, well, we have some set of rules but then we don't enforce them or we don't really know or it just kind of depends on like what people say in the neighborhood. Right? Like that's it's not, it's not an answer to the policy question to say that like whoever happens to be here – gets incredibly generous treatment, but then we have no opinion on, like, who might come tomorrow, right? Now, if you could create, like, a magical force field that just, like, automatically repelled future 
unauthorized border crossings without requiring any kind of draconian enforcement in a border zone or something like that, like that might answer everyone's problems. Say like, look, we'll just legalize everybody who's here and we'll turn the force field on. But like there is no force field, right? So like even border enforcement consists of like wall building and militarization. And right now there's like a hundred mile zone in which uh, CBP can like stop your car. And Yeah. And, 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 and it's worth noting that a lot of the kind of clips that have gone viral or stories that have gone viral of aggressive enforcement. Uh, the you know girl who was detained in the hospital last year after surgery, for example, have actually been carried out by CBP, which has much looser rules of engagement. So I think a lot of the energy being directed against ICE as an agency is kind of being misdirected and is against the idea of enforcement. Right. But so but so this is like this is the thing, right? It's like there's no immaculate forward-looking enforcement, right? Like the way you would do forward-looking enforcement is that something would have to happen at least to some extent inside the territory of the United States and rules would have to be enforced against people who had been inside the United States for at least some period of time, right? Like, again, it would be great if you could just have, like, an instantaneous repulsive force that, like, cleanly divided, like, who is here from who is coming in the future. But that's not something that, like, really, I, I think is is doable. Whereas the kinds of things that you've had in the, like, boring legislative process, which is, like, here's going to be a way you can get – like, like that is something you can do, right? Like, these are real bills. Like, they did not come to a floor vote in the House of Representatives, but they could have. And I think with good reason – I mean, sometimes politicians, like, don't want to touch things because they're just being chicken shit. But I do think this is also a case where politicians would like to address a policy question with – policy tools, whereas activists and community members, they they want something fast, which I think is understandable. Like the legislative process in the United States is a disaster and has not adequately resolved this situation in any way, uh, but also is like the process that generates like viable policies. Yeah. So I, I was actually going to joke, congratulations, Matt, you've just invented comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, because like this is, you know, it this is not a new tension, and it's something that Democrats have had for for a while, for so long that it actually genuinely seems like a stale idea at this point. You know, a a response to which is if you go back to like 2013 when this bill passed the Senate, the argument was, look, there's very little immigration from you know across the U.S. Mexico border, uh, much less unauthorized immigration. The people who are here have been here for years and years and years. Both of these are historically anomalous, or at least certainly them happening at the same time is historically anomalous. This is a very good time to say, if you've been living in the U.S., then you're fine. If you aren't already living in the U.S., we're going to make it harder for you to get here. We're going to make it harder for you to get a job when you get here. And we're going to be as aggressive as we've been in deporting you. And like those two populations of people, because they were distinct, treating them differently made a certain amount of sense. That's not as much the case anymore. It's still true that apprehensions across the U.S.-Mexico border are very low, but increasingly and increasingly visibly, the people who are getting apprehended are 
seeking some form of humanitarian relief. They're Central Americans seeking asylum. They're coming from Congo. They're coming from India. There's kind of a big difference between we're catching a bunch of 20-something dudes who just want to work in the U.S. and we're catching people who are trying to go through a legal process to be allowed to stay here legally. And the idea of cracking down on those people to help the current unauthorized population is much less appealing. But I think the other thing is that, like, Democrats aren't the party in power. They're not, you know, even in a most wildly optimistic scenario for Democrats for 2018, they aren't going to have the presidency. And so the idea of what is an agenda that can, that Democrats could be pushed from the left to call for, you know, and this, this ties back to what you were saying, Matt, about the, like, abolish the CFPB idea. It's, Something that even a minority party can be fighting in Congress to reduce the money available to that agency, to make sure that there's, you know, to send a bunch of angry letters to agency heads saying you have to document X, Y, and Z. Why did you do A, B, and C? There's already right now, as as Congress gears up for its next spending deadline, a campaign among some immigrant rights groups to say, well, if you guys aren't going to pass a DREAM Act as part of this bill and legalize people who currently have protections under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, or DACA, then at very least, you shouldn't be giving the Trump administration money that could later be used to deport these people. And it's not an abolish ICE campaign. It is a, like, restrict funding for ICE, but you could, but it's something that the, you know, that is obviously of a piece with the abolish ICE idea, right? That it should be fought at every turn. And so that's kind of something that I think, as an organizing ask, is... It's more of an immediate thing than, well, we promise if President Harris wins in 2020 uh, that we'll pass comprehensive immigration reform and therefore you should vote for us in 2018. Well, this is also an Overton window point on the funding, right? Drumming up noise around abolish ICE is a way of turning ICE appropriations into a tough ask that Republicans make of Democrats, that Democrats should ask for either offsetting concessions or not do or something like that rather than being an easy ask where it's like if Republicans want to come back home and like tell the Gilkles, oh, we did something about immigration, Democrats are like, sure, have another $50 million, right? It it changes that dynamic in, in the appropriations battle. If Democrats can find themselves going into the room and saying like, you know, like, if I give one cent of extra money to ICE, like I'm going to get yelled at about that by this guy and that guy. So, you know, it, 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 it changes things if it works. On the other hand, I think there's a perversity of this, which is that the Gang of Eight bill from 2013 was a bill that, for better or worse, people were very comfortable voting for, right? Like a bunch of Republicans were ready to vote for it. Like many were not. And like Tons of Democrats were, like Joe Manchin was, John Tester was, Heidi Heitkamp was. You you know what I mean? Like Democrats were like going to do that, right? Like Democrats in tough races, in tough states, they were going to do this bill and they they would be happy to do it again as best I can tell from from the last fight. Abolish ICE like Kamala Harris isn't happy to do, right? So it's, it's way more politically hot. But also, like, if you're living as an undocumented person in Texas with a, like, hostile local political environment and, like, an increasingly hostile local political environment, 
your life would be helped by like defunding or abolishing ICE and cutting back on interior enforcement, but it would be helped so much more by the like moderate milk toast gang of eight solution that would like give you a legal right to live and work in the United States and to go to school and, and to do things. So it's like both more radical, which is like fun for social media purposes as an activist, but like really not fun if you're a legislator you know, trying to win elections, but also like way less helpful in terms of like, what, what are you like, what are you actually doing for undocumented immigrants? So I think like if you do it, right? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's most useful to see this campaign as a way to keep white progressives and leftists engaged on immigration issues instead of perpetuating this policy divide that the 2016 primary campaign really reified between leftists on the internet being super concerned with economics and you know people of the base of the base being super concerned with non-economic policy issues people who think a lot about leftism understand tend to think about immigration as an important component of that the idea that socialism you know or like more left economic policies require being super tough on foreign workers undercutting wages is not something that a younger generation of intellectual leftists is super on board with but it's not in terms of issue salience always the most important thing to them. And the way that immigration activism tends to happen, because it's very case-based, because it's very quick now, make a call to this field office to make sure this person doesn't get deported, it's something that doesn't necessarily appeal to the Jacobins of the world, right? The the like the people who are interested in the intellectual struggle for you know, what an American left should look like. So if you think of abolished ICE as a way to kind of give a meaty policy or theoretical thing, you know, bone for the left to chew on so that they stay engaged on migrant rights on, you know, through an administration that is posing a threat to those rights, I think it makes a little more sense than if you see it as primarily a way to pull Democrats to the left. Right. But I mean, but there's a flip side of this, right, is that there's a huge risk that you are going to create an environment where like when Beto O'Rourke is trying to get volunteers to knock on doors and make phone calls for him in his race against Ted Cruz, that people are going to hear like, fuck this guy. He doesn't even want to abolish ICE. All he wants to do is give permanent legal status and a path to citizenship to millions of people. Right. And like, that's crazy. Right. Like the stupid sellout Dem position that like all like all of them support. Right. Is a much better deal for undocumented Americans than abolishing ICE would be, right? Like, that doesn't mean, like, you can want to abolish ICE or not want to abolish ICE or whatever, right? But, like, if what you care about actually is, like, helping undocumented immigrants, the it is true that, like, there's nothing more boring than to be enthusiastic about a policy idea that commands universal support within one political party but was defeated due to legislative cartel dynamics in the House of Representatives years ago, right? Like, it's so boring. You sound like a crazy old person when you're like, one good way to solve this problem. <laughs> but, like, it's a good way to solve the problem. And just, like, to generate emotional energy in a direction that like casts the proponents of a good solution to this problem as like like tools of of the man i think is uh risky
All right, we should almost certainly take a break. And uh, during that break, we're going to put President Harris into office, and then we're going to talk about this as an actual like thing that could be done rather than talking about what happens if it can't be done. The quality matters. Uh, whether you're looking for dependable political reporting, just great storytelling, or, or the latest stuff in the worlds of cultural entertainment, magazines are just a great way to do it. They've got high-quality writing, beautiful photography. I love magazines. I started my career working at magazines. My mother worked her whole career in magazines. And now you can get all your magazines in one place with texture. Uh, what is it? It's an app that gives you unlimited access to over 200 premium magazines. It's really, it's like it's a mind-blowing uh, compilation. They've got The Atlantic. They've got The New Yorker, Vanity Fair. Wired, tons of stuff from all the leading publishers. And right now, you can try Texture for free. So what does this app get you? Uh, just imagine having your favorite magazines, all of them, and their back issues anytime, anywhere. Uh, so to check it out, start your free trial by going to texture.com slash weeds. If you choose to continue, our podcast listeners will get Texture for just $9.99 a month, which again, think about how amazing a deal that is, right? $9.99 a month, that's like the cost of subscribing to like one or two magazines, but you get 200. It's, it's like wild. You go to texture.com slash weeds to start your free trial today. That's texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. So the obvious question about abolishing ice is like, if you did this, like what, what would you, what would you do? Like what, what happens to immigration law? Right. Is so it did... just, is it the purge? Like, <laughs> I think we've hinted at this at kind of the options throughout this episode, but to kind of like pull them out, there's the the retrocession idea, right, where you basically just absorb interior immigration enforcement either into Customs and Border Protection and create this bigger immigration enforcement agency, or you reabsorb it into citizenship and immigration services and, you know, have the same people responsible for deporting people and granting visas, or you kind of reconstitute immigration and natural naturalization services itself, right? Like, you get rid of the idea that there is a separate budget line and a separate agency for the purposes of enforcement of immigration law in the interior of the United States and reconceptualize it as it's important to enforce immigration law generally, at which point you can be a little more fungible with resources and make sure that not a ton of resources are getting spent to deport people whose only violation of the law is being in the U.S. without papers. So like one well, like one viable retrocession vision, right, would be it's like so you you remerge it with the people who issue the visas and you try to really push it into a thing where you're catching visa like new visa overstayers, right? You're and you're and you're framing this as just like it's one agency. Resources are to some extent fungible inside the agency and it's like okay, we're issuing the visas and then we've got guys like the the cops in the agency are in charge of like trying to track that visa person and, like, making sure that they left. And that's a sort of de facto way of drawing the the new old mm -hmm. distinction. Because if you've been here a while, I mean, you may or may not have had a visa that expired, but, like, it also would have expired a while ago. Or you could try to merge it with the border and just try to, like, literally push the people, like, like closer to the border, right? So it's like if nobody is working in the Denver office because they've all been sent to New Mexico, then, you know, you have a relaxed situation in Denver. Right. I mean, you can see pretty obvious problems with both of these scenarios, right? In, in the first case, 
what's happening at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services right now uh, could be an entire other episode. Uh, if somebody wants to pay for ads on the USCIS Hour with Dara Lind, I would totally be okay with that. Thanks, Vox Media Podcast Network. Um, but right now, the current director of that agency is encouraging the people who process the visas to already think of themselves as an enforcement agency and to think of their job as making sure that no one who shouldn't get a visa, which includes people who will overstay visas, like part of the reason that someone can be denied a visa is we think you're going to stay in the U.S. after this is over, no matter what you're telling right. us now. So, you know, not going to get into that. So that is happening already, even without there being a part of that agency that is designed to catch visa overstays. You can easily see a world in which reconceptualizing USCIS as we are here to give visas and catch anybody who overstays them becomes a world in which a lot fewer people get visas to begin with because the people handing out the visas think of their job as preventing any overstays. Right, it's like they're like, all cops no, now, right? Right, right. That, that, that is certainly not what the proponents of Abolish ICE would be going for. And on the flip side, you know, it is already the case that Border Patrol agents, uh, as Matt said, operate within 100 miles of the physical U.S.-Mexico or U.S.-Canada or maritime border. Uh, that that encompasses some ridiculous proportion, not only of all people in the U.S., but certainly of immigrants in the U.S. Yeah, this is why I had to use Denver as my example, right, because right. Chicago, New York, all of LA, California. San Diego. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's ludicrous. And there are, you know, people on the border in or people who, like, live in border communities in New Mexico, for example, are like, we have so many Border Patrol agents here just hanging out or at, you know, roadside checkpoints that it's already a big problem for those of us who live here. You can't just say that border enforcement doesn't impact immigrants who are already in the U.S. because we're here and it does. So there's, you know, what that could very easily do is create a situation where, Immigrants in Denver are okay, or maybe aren't. Maybe a world where you combine those two agencies is a world where, you know, Border Patrol agents can operate more freely anywhere in the country. But people, immigrants who live in San Diego or El Paso are like even more, you know, confronted every day by the specter of immigration enforcement. So it's just in either of the retrocession cases, the idea of abolition of ICE works as a congressional strategy, but it's not clear that it gets you to the policy outcomes that people want. So maybe we go to the second idea. Maybe we go to the idea of what I think of as like a consent decree for immigration and customs enforcement. The idea here is that, you know, the problem with ICE is that ICE agents are people who are overly aggressive, that they are splitting up families because they are on some level bad people, that the only way you can fix this agency is to purge the people who are currently there or put them under extremely restrictive new management and change the institutional culture of the agency to something different. But I think the other thing you could do, right, is try to genuinely change what the interior enforcement function is. And this would be something like retrocession of ICE into the U.S. Marshals Service, right, where there will be people who get deported, right, probably because they are in the criminal justice system. And then you need some guys with guns and badges to, like, do the deporting. But there won't be cops whose job it is is to 
get those people into the criminal justice system, right? And in that case, it's like a person might end up in jail and then that person's immigration status might get checked and then that person might get deported. But if you kind of kept your head, I mean, if you, if you stayed in the shadows, to use the metaphor, like you would be safe. Nobody would be looking in the shadows. Um, and that is something that like we could do. I think it's sort of characterized American immigration enforcement for a while. Um, it's not great, I think, on a number of levels. Uh, and I think raised the counterterrorism concerns after 9-11, that it's like, that sounds fine as long as it's fine. But then like one day a visa overstayer hijacks a plane, kills 3,000 people, and you're like, what? It right. was like, nobody's job to are a couple to... of dudes who are in the in the shadows, not because they don't have an opportunity to get out of the shadows, but because they would prefer to be in the shadows. Right. It's, it's weird. I don't want to say weird. There's a problem with deliberately creating a like law enforcement negative space. Right. Like you would be doing that to help people who are genuinely like well-intentioned in their lives. But like once it's there, right, if it's like really firmly established that like if you are doing certain things, like no one's going to be looking into your business, that's an invitation to some bad actors. And it very tight. It's like the way the media and politics works is like you could have 10 million people in the shadows and then like seven of them do something spectacular and like the whole thing goes to shit. Yeah, I think that this is the, the bad actors thing is also true on the employment enforcement side, right? Which is something that we kind of haven't directly talk about, talked about. But, you know, one of the things that makes comprehensive immigration reform like a good centrist, you know, broadly supported pitch is that it says, well, we're going to make it a lot harder for bad actor employers to be able to undercut wages by hiring people who aren't don't have legal work permits because we're going to institute, you know, mandatory employment verification. And the only reason that that's practicable as policy is because it would be paired with the 8 million people who are already working here without papers would get papers. So it's not kicking 8 million people out of the workforce. But in policy, it's not, you know, as it's currently practiced, it's not like... Employment enforcement means that employers are in trouble and employees aren't, right? Employees, employers are often fine as long as they manage to fire anybody who's working without papers. Uh, they may not, you know, even if they are suffer civil penalties, they are very rarely criminally prosecuted. Meanwhile, anybody who gets arrested as part of a workplace raid who is here without papers is subject to deportation. So the kind of differential punishment of employer and employees is not exactly balanced. It's not clear if you do a kind of roll back the clock to the 1990s idea. There's a reason that, you know, the conservative critiques of the 1986 and even 1996 bills were that they did not do enough to turn off the quote unquote jobs magnet and punish employers. Like those are true statements about both bills. Um, I mean, that they that they did not do as much on punishing employers as they did on on a lot of other enforcement angles. So this does leave a big question. Like if you have a world where people can undercut wages, you know, can can employ unauthorized immigrants with impunity, is that creating the kind of wage undercutting concern that in the current system is usually vastly overstated? Yeah, I mean, this is a thing where 
I'm going to be interested to see what happens over the next year, two years of a much stronger American economy. A lot of the changes in the partisan valence of immigration issues and in the activist community and in the political alignments took place in the shadows of uh, this, this incredible recession that turned off the jobs magnet much more effectively than like any kind of e-verify compliance system possibly could. Like nobody was hiring anybody for anything. Um, so it was not like great. We are, you know, coming back to a period of time in which employers of low wage workers are going to have a very strong economic incentive to find some new groups of people who are like eager to do low-wage work in the United States. And a lot of that is beneficial. There's good stories in the, in the newspaper recently about companies uh, rethinking their approach to hiring recovering drug addicts, to hiring ex-offenders, that the number of people reporting disabilities that prevent them from working is declining because employers are becoming more willing to accommodate them. But this also means like visa overstayers or Guys who went, you know, in through some smuggling route through Mexico are also in the category of like marginal possible employees and businesses, you know, may really want to gain new people in, in a way that they haven't in the past. It's possible that you'll see renewed flows of workers from, from south of the border in a way that you haven't had before. And that could change a lot. I mean, it could change many things in terms of like what is the focus on, right? It could really encourage the Trump administration to stick to its anti-immigration guns and drastically step up workplace enforcement as the most effective tactic. It could also re relight tensions inside the Republican Party to say that like, no, like this is bad for the economy. It's, it's bad for growth uh, to not be able to have workers coming here. You know, obviously what happens from the administration is going to shape what people on the other side are focused on and, and what they're interested in. The whole topic of employment has sort of languished over, over the past several years as, as really a subject while we've been focusing on interior enforcement. Yeah, and I think these are there are two separate narratives of what kept people from coming into the country as much during the time when immigration enforcement was at its highest, you know, in the last couple of years of Bush, first few years of Obama. And those tend not to talk to each other. Um, but the unsexy but correct truth is that, of course, it, it, it was both that you have a lot of people, certainly a lot of unauthorized immigrants leaving the U.S., uh, in the time of the Great Recession because there was no reason for them to stay. Um, but you also do have most scholars on this agree over the time that you've had built up border enforcement uh, over the last 20 odd years, there is a change in how likely someone is to try to enter the U.S. and certainly to try to re-enter the U.S. after they were caught the first time. So you know, maybe it's less clear what relationship interior enforcement has to all of this. But generally, scholars agree that people are making relatively informed decisions about whether and when to migrate and that they're doing some kind of risk benefit calculus. The risk benefit calculus until, you know, 10 or 15 years ago was that you weren't going to get deported. So as long as you made it through, you were fine. That is no longer the case. That's, you know, another argument for 
some sort of legalization of people who are already here is that they are being met with a law enforcement regime that even though it existed on the books did not in fact exist, that they are being faced with a consequence that they did not know about. And so there's kind of some weird ex post facto concern there. But it's not totally clear how that changes in a world where you have the, you know, if you were to take the radical abolish ICE and abolish deportation position, which is kind of, you know, the the last remaining option, I think, for what you do with abolish ICE is don't just have somebody else in charge of deportations, prevent deportation from being a thing you do to someone who's just violated immigration laws. In that case, it is not clear whether that changes the calculus of whether someone should come to the U.S. or not, because that creates a weird situation. Well, it's certainly a situation we haven't had in a while where if you come into the U.S. and you manage to escape detection for a certain amount of time and put down roots here and, you know, maybe have U.S.-born children, that you are going to be able to stay even if you won't be able to get legal status. For a lot of U.S. history, you could both stay and ultimately get legal status. That changed, you know, over the last part of the 20th century. But the idea of if you are here for a certain amount of time, you'll be able to stay indefinitely. That's an interesting experiment that might end up changing some of the things we think we know about how people decide to migrate to begin with. I think we better wrap up rather than do like a whole new two hours on guest workers. Um, but, you know, that's, that's where we're headed. At any rate, thanks a lot for everybody who is listening. Uh, thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Um, thanks to our sponsors. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. And The Weeds will be back next week. Mm-hmm.